Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Yes, what a beautiful day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I mean, what, what a beautiful sight when the sun is up. And, and I really like when it's overcast, too. So it's like you, you have uh, such beauty and power and mag- magnificence in our God. And uh, it's good when the light shines and when God's word shines into our hearts. So we'll be in Genesis 25, starting in verse 29. And let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who has illuminated this world and our hearts with our sinfulness, really, to show us our need for repentance and new life in Christ. And thank you that that has been given us through the gospel and through Christ's sacrifice that your atoning blood has purchased us and uh, that you have these exceedingly great and precious promises made available to us through Jesus. And thank you for my brothers and sisters for this place that you've given us to gather and for the message that you have for each one of us today. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what you're saying, that we would be hungry coming to you today. Lord, looking uh, for you to fill our open mouths because uh, we need you. And we need your guidance, we need your wisdom, we need your, your strength in our lives, not just so we can accomplish what we want, but so that we can do your will. And thank you that it's you who works in us both to will and do of your good pleasure. And I pray that you would be glorified and honored as we uh, worship and study your word, as we really uh, draw near to you in faith today by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know exactly what year it was, but I remember old Gregor Mendel and how he used pea plants to discover the laws of inheritance. Did you guys learn that in school as well? I already studied peas and, and uh, was very precise. And he, he discovered that the, each parent plant would give dominant and recessive traits. So he, this understanding was then applied to people. And... Uh, for eye color, for instance, everyone who has brown eyes, they either have two big bees or a big bee and a little bee. And it was really interesting to me because having blue eyes, um, my parents, one has brown, the other has blue. And so each of them passed one bee to me, whether it was a big bee or a little bee. And the fact that I had blue eyes meant that I knew something about my dad because my mother could only pass a little bee, but he could pass a big bee or a little bee. And that's the only way that I could have blue eyes. Say, ah, I know something about my genetics now. That was very interesting. Fascinating. Now, our genetics, of course, we can inherit many things. Appearance-related or uh, pass along medical conditions or uh, an increased risk of illness. And when someone acts like their parents or looks like them, we say they're a chip off the old block, right? They're part, they're, they're, we can tell they're related. They came from the same genetic pool. Spiritually speaking, we are all chips off the old block, the chips off of Adam and Eve, because we're hopeless sinners. In one sense, we can't, inhe- we can't help our inherited sinfulness, but we also have willfully perpetrated it by our preference. That's how we roll. That's, that's what we do. It's, it's as easy for us as breathing or thinking. It's just we do it very naturally. So in Genesis 25, 29, we're, that's where we're going to begin. Last week, Esau and Jacob, they were born to Rebekah 
and Isaac. They look so different. They were twins, but they look so different. You wouldn't have known they were related, right? One, it says he came out red, hairy like a coat, like a garment. And later on, we'll find out he was so hairy that he could have been confused for a goat. So he was a very hairy person. And his brother, not so hairy, uh, but Esau grew up to be a, a hairy hunter. He's very skillful. And Jacob, he's described as a mild man who preferred domestic duties in the tents. Now Isaac, he loved Esau because of his mean barbecue, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now saying Jacob was mild, some people have different ideas of what that means, but the concept of it in the original language is being whole and a man of integrity. That's the same word that God uses to describe Job in Job 1.8, where it says he's a blameless man who feared God. So in the Genesis passage, mild, and then God refers to Job as blameless. So Jacob was a weasel, to be sure. But scheming didn't start or end with him. And it's easy to overlook this evidence that Jacob was actually a man who feared God who is a man who believed God and that he, we could define him by his flaws rather than his integrity because he's a man who desired the things of God. Now, our human t- tendency is to elevate those that we respect to the point where they can do no wrong or we condemn those that we don't agree with and they can do no right. So let's avoid that trap Because the Holy Spirit, through God's word, it exposes us as being no better than our fathers. It's like we haven't done anything that has not already been done. But the Lord helps us to know what sin is and how to walk righteously. Genesis 25, 29. We pick up the story. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau's out hunting in the field. Jacob He's cooking a slow-cooked stew over a fire. He's, you know, doing very different tasks at that time. And Esau comes in. He's really tired. He says, hey, give me some of that red stew, that stew of lentils that you've made. And we can see that Jacob was not just caught up in seasoning and uh, temperature control or fresh herbs. He was thinking about his future. He's thinking, you know, I shared a womb with my brother, For nine months. And because he was born a few minutes earlier than me, he gets the inheritance. He gets the birthright. And I want that for myself. It's something that I value. And I know he doesn't value it at all. So here's an opportunity for me to seize what I desire and what he doesn't want anyway. So he says, I'll make you an offer. Sell me your birthright. I'll give you some food, but sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau, he could only think of his present hunger. He's like, a birthright? It's worth nothing to me if I'm dead. What good is it? Now, was he really on the verge of death? Probably not. It's unlikely. And if he was, it was really 
cruel and unloving what Jacob did to withhold food from him. But the fact is, Esau didn't value his birthright. He despised it. And that's, that's the point that the text makes. He sold his permanent birthright from God for a bowl of red lentils and bread that he gobbled down in minutes. And it's ironic, you have this skillful hunter who's out in the field stalking his prey. He's ensnared by his own hunger and lust. The mild man of the tents, he could secure a birthright that he hunted with a bowl of stew. It's quite ironic, right? So what was a birthright? Well, this would be further developed under the law of Moses, but it was the advantage and privilege of being the oldest son of your father. It meant that the authority of the father would be passed down to you, that the genealogy of the family tree would pass through your line. And it would be traced down over generations, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac, he received all that his father had, but remember, Abraham had many children. He had Ishmael, born first, but he gave everything to his son. He had many sons after Isaac. Verse 34, it gives us insight into Esau's actions that by selling it, he despised it. He hated it. He hated the demands that it made on his life to care for others, to provide for them, to lead the family in the worship of God. It was like this worthless burden to him that if he could get a meal out of it and be done with it, it was a far more attractive way of living than being hungry. You want the birthright? Sure, I'll give it to you. I'll sell it to you. It says he ate, drank, arose, and went his way. His actions, they indicate someone who's living and caring only for himself. He's not thinking about honoring his father. He's not thinking about honoring God. He justified selling his birthright because he was hungry. When I read this passage where he's like, you know, he just sits down, eats a meal, and he goes his way. It was nothing to him to have lunch. I was reminded of the adulterous woman we read about in Proverbs 30, 20. It says, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. It's like when we, so adultery, it's when you're outside of the bounds of marriage with sexual activity, not thinking about the damage that you're doing to yourself or to your other, because those who commit adultery do so, they sin against their own bodies. And for this woman in Proverbs 30, it's like adultery was as trivial for her as eating a meal. She was hungry, there it was, and she consumed it. She, we, we sit down and go to a restaurant and we, we look at what appeals to us and we order that and we receive it. It's like ordering quiche. There was just no, no problem with it at all because there was no fear of God. There was no, rec- there was no understanding of what was happening. No one criticizes a hungry person for eating, right? We say you should eat. But um, this adulteress justified self out of apparent need. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews 12, where we actually make a connection of this, Hebrews 12, verse 14, we get more insight into Esau's character because his problem was not so much he was a glutton. It wasn't that he was sexually immoral as the prime problem, but the issue was a spiritual one. He was estranged from God spiritually. He had no fear of God, and thus he sinned. Hebrews 12, 14 through 16. We read, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. 
looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Esau had a spiritual problem because he did not fear or trust God. And he's described as, so he's following the flesh, right? He's doing what's natural to him. He's feeding his own appetites. And he's described as a fornicator. That word there in Greek is pornos, which is sexually immoral. So he's feeding his sexual appetites outside of marriage. He's called profane. That means godless and irreverent. It means a threshold permitted to be trodden. And that's a very interesting term of phrase because we read of this in 1 Samuel chapter 5, to tread upon. The Philistines, they capture the ark of God, right? They bring it back to Ashdod and put it in their temple. And overnight, the image of Dagon falls down before the ark of the covenant. And they come in and they're like, oh no, Dagon's tipped over. And they tip Dagon back up and they you know, make sure he's stable and secure. Oh, that was weird. And then they leave. Come back the next day and... Dagon is wrecked. His hands have broken off. His head has fallen off. And it says only the stump of him remained. So we know he was made of wood. This image made of wood that they revered and worshipped had fallen down before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, did they burn Dagon as scrap, as firewood, and start worshipping the, the true God? No. They reverenced the threshold upon which Dagon fell and was broken. So what they did as a tradition from that day forward is they would step over the threshold. So they showed respect to their deity by stepping over the place where Dagon had fell to give him reverence. It's like in these heathen idolaters, there was more reverence for a piece of wood than Esau showed to God, the God of his father's the God of Abraham and Isaac. He had no problem to trample God's statutes underfoot, doing whatever he pleased in pursuit of his own lust. Now, the writer of Hebrews urged followers of Jesus to pursue peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So God calls us to a holy standard of living. Having redeemed us, if we are his, if we are born again, well, now we have new desires and an ability to, by his grace, to say no to sin and to choose to do what pleases him. And he gives us the power to do it through the indwelling spirit. So the quality of our character, it's seen by the choices we make much more than just reciting a creed or a doctrine that you espouse. That's what is the measure of your character is the decisions you make. Just like Esau, where he's like, a meal or my birthright? If we're contentious, if we're judgmental and bitter, these are indications we are not walking according to God's grace and pursuing holiness. So how does fornication and profane, being profane connect Esau with eating stew, right? Because <laughs> that's the... That's the thing that he did. And we go, how could that be so insightful about his character that he ate stew? Well, he despised his birthright by trading it for a bowl of stew. He showed hatred to God by his sexual immorality, his cursing, his refusal to walk in holiness. He placed more value on temporarily satisfying his hunger and his flesh rather than being obedient to God. 
Those who have no care to walk in holiness before God do good to examine their own hearts to see if they're actually born again. In a sense, everyone's like Esau or Jacob. You'll either hate the birthright that we have through faith in Jesus Christ and we're born again and brought into his kingdom, or we will desire that for ourselves and say, that's what I want. I desire to be a child of God. I desire to walk holiness. And in our flesh, that desire is, does not exist. We need him, and he helps us. So God's given us this invitation to be born again as a child of God, and it's our choice if we'll receive the gospel and we'll pursue obedience to Christ in holiness. That's the way that God has called us to live, a holy life. Genesis 26, verse 1. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. There was a famine in the land. This prompted Isaac to leave Lahai Roy. He traveled to the land of the Philistines in Gerar. And our text suggests that he had intended to go further to Egypt. But the Lord appeared to him. And God spoke to him and directed him. said, do not go down to Egypt makes me think he was going there. Do not go down there. Stay in this land. Stay in this land in which you dwell, the land of Gerar. And then God makes him this promise. Dwell in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you. The land that he resided, God would, he said, I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants as he promised to Abraham. So the promise that God made to Abraham was now offered to Isaac. Would he walk in light of it? Or would he keep going down to Egypt? In his seed, all the nations of the earth should be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, this is really remarkable because we know that the law came with the law of Moses, right? And that's hundreds of years later. So because of the relationship that Abraham had with God, God had spoken many things to him and directed him in how he was to live his life, what was righteous in his sight and what was wickedness. These were laws not written on tablets of stone like on Sinai, but he spoke them to him and Abraham obeyed him. He believed him. He kept his duties, commands, customs. He heeded his instruction. So Abraham, he was loyal to God, but now it was a chance to see, is Isaac going to be a chip off the old block to Adam or to Abraham? A A man who chooses faith in God or one who follows the flesh, one who follows the physical desires, what he wants. God's the same. God's promise was given to Abraham. It was given to Isaac as well. And it was his choice if he would follow it or not. Now, I think it's really insightful that this happened during a famine. It's a time when Isaac was well aware of his need and his lack. And quite often, God does this. He brings us to a place of trouble, 
a place of the end of ourselves, a place where we, we need guidance and direction, and we have this opportunity then, our eyes are open to our need for direction and empowerment. So God's like, I'm going to provide your needs presently if you stay here. If you remain in this land, I will provide for your needs presently. I will provide for future generations that will come to you. So he has a choice. Will he believe God or trust him? Would his wealth and success in business cause him to ignore God's command? Prosperity, it can breed entitlement when it's mixed with pride that we imagine that our success is because of our own efforts. We've earned it in some way. We know how to live. We know what to do. We, we have experience. But verse six, it says, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And I love the little word, so, because it shows us that the only reason why he stayed in Gerar is because God told him to. That's why he stayed. Egypt still could have looked much better to him at that time. Maybe the prospects of having more flocks and herds seemed more attractive, just like that bowl of lentils was more attractive than retaining the birthright. But he stayed because God said so. And that was enough for him. He believed God and he trusted God. He experienced the peace of God, not because, yeah, I could see us having a future here. No, because he believed God. He just took a bold step of faith to stay. And that can be hard when you feel like going to stay, to trust and rest and say, right here, I can have the complete blessing of God because he has spoken and I believe him. Now, peace with God, it's not primarily a feeling. It's really good standing and rest with God. So when we think of a peace, we're like, oh, I feel good about it. But that's not really what peace is. Peace is a standing that we have, a position with God, and then there's great comfort in that position, in that place, where we're resting in his promise, we're believing what he has said, we are throwing ourselves upon his mercy to sustain us day by day. That is the place of peace. It's in him. He is our peace. And when we understand that, we can rest in him regardless of our circumstances or how we're feeling. Verse seven, and the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. Does this sound familiar? We have heard this. We have read this tale before twice, right? Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Once in Egypt, another time in Gerar with Abimelech. And Abraham said, hey, this is the common practice wherever I go. So he had done it many, many more times besides the two that's listed. Isaac was a chip off the old block in more ways than one. He followed in his father's step by obeying God, but he also demonstrated the same deceit and fear to lie about his relationship with his wife, calling her his sister. Now, it's important to say we don't see Abraham pulling this ruse after the birth of Isaac. So we can't say this is a learned behavior like, oh yeah, he's just following his example. We see that Abraham ceased doing this. And Isaac went further than Abraham because like Abraham said, it was technically true to a degree. It was with an aim to deceive, but she was his half-sister. Sarah was Abraham's half-sister, but Rebekah is not. 
Isaac's sister in any way. So it's a bold-faced lie. And it was one that he told, the Bible says, we'll read, for a long time. He kept telling this lie. He said it, and he kept saying it, and he kept saying it again and again and again. Now, I know by experience, I did not need to be taught to sin. You can tell me um, if you're different. I doubt it. I didn't need to be told how to lie or how to deceive. I had to be taught how to wash my face and how to clean my hands, but I did not need lessons on how to get my face and hands dirty. Right? That's just going to happen. When you're a kid and you're playing in the dirt, you're going to get dirty. I didn't need lessons for that. But I did need to learn that, you know, just splashing water on yourself, that's not really washing. You have to use soap. Oh, okay. You can't just, that, that's not washing. You have to use shampoo. Okay. I, I didn't need to take an, an advanced course in exaggeration or gossip or boasting or slander or the subtle art of flattery. 101. I, I didn't have to. This came as naturally for me as having blue eyes. Very natural. Don't have to work at it. Don't have to even think about it. It can happen without me even realizing it. And this is natural because I'm a chip off the old block of Adam. Because I'm made of the same flesh. I have the same desires and tendencies that think about me that do give place to fear and worry and cares, that's easily overwhelmed with the world and what's happening. Now, I won't be held accountable for Adam's sin, and neither will you, but you will be held accountable by God for yours because you have chosen to sin. The fact that Abraham and Isaac, they pulled the same sinful stunt, though, it means that people with genuine faith with a real in a real relationship with God, God's revealed himself to them, they can still fall into sin. They can still choose to sin. So overarchingly, believing in God and his existence, trusting him for where you're living, but still lying. These inconsistencies, right? Where we think if, if uh, we must be a, a just, we, we struggle to understand how that can be, but it, it is. It is how it is. People with genuine faith sin. God's not in all of our thoughts. We do fear what might happen to us rather than listening to God who's with us, who's promised to bless us. Now I wonder, how many times do our fears rest in our minds and it prompts lies to pour out of our mouths because we haven't actually confessed our fear to God? You know, thinking about something is not praying about it. Just because you've had a thought, it doesn't mean you've prayed. There's a huge difference between journaling and writing a letter that you put in an envelope and you mail to someone, right? You post it to them. Big difference because of the audience. Looking at pictures of trains is very different than booking a trip and getting on the train and going to a different destination. Looking at desserts is very different than tasting them. Okay, these are all intentional activities that you must do. You cannot accidentally do them. You cannot accidentally write a letter and post it to someone. You can't accidentally eat that dessert. We'd love if that was true. But the reality is we knew it. We opened our mouth. We chewed it up and we swallowed it down. We chose to do that. So why would we hide behind a lie rather than seeking refuge in Christ? Who is the way, the truth, and the life? Well, because we naturally look to ourselves or to others. 
rather than the Savior. We cave to the fear of man rather than casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. When we put the flesh on autopilot, it will always lead us to sin. Just like if you're standing up and you fall asleep, you're going to fall down. It is just like the force of gravity is too much. Well, sin, it will lead us from the Lord. Genesis 26, verse 8. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. We read that they had been in Gerar for a long time. Abimelech, he's looking through the lattice and he's like, huh, what is going on in there? They are obviously married. They are not, it says he was showing endearment to her. He was caressing her. He was dallying with her. The King James says sporting. So they were having fun in a marital way, and it was obvious that they were not brother and sister. He's like, this is not on. He has not been straightforward with me. So totally inappropriate behavior for siblings or unmarried people. Abimelech's like, they're brother and sister. Isaac, we need to have a talk. So he summons him and he says, quite obviously she's your wife. Notice he doesn't even ask. He doesn't, he doesn't say, so what was that story you told, you've been telling to everybody? Like your relation with Rebecca? No, he's like, it's obvious, mate. <laughs> you guys are married. Why did you lie? And he offers this lame excuse, right? In light of God and his promise. He's saying, if the truth was known concerning me and my wife, my life could be in jeopardy. And he rebuked him for that lie. And the spiritual insight of Abimelech is really amazing here because he recognizes right from wrong, truth from lies, adultery is sinful, and sin's devastating impact upon people, families, and communities. He's like, look at the trouble you could have caused because you lied. People might have taken her as wife, and that would have brought guilt upon all of us. Now let's analyze Isaac's response a little further. Abimelech says, how could you lie? Answer, very easily. As easy as drawing breath. Now fundamental reason why we lie is because we believe we can get away with it. If you believe that you couldn't get away with it, why would you? And still we can be so senseless to do so. Isaac lied because he was afraid. He believed telling the truth was more risky than lying when the exact opposite was true. In the heat of the moment, we can know that liars will all have their place in the uh, burning lake of fire forever. That doesn't deter us from lying. So we know that lying is sinful and that it leads to destruction, but that in the moment doesn't strengthen us to not lie, right? That knowledge. The truth was, it wasn't that Isaac lied because his wife was smoking hot or the people had a, a reputation for killing off husbands and taking their wives. He lied because he didn't trust God or his promise. 
Full stop. That's why he lied. He didn't believe God. He believed him enough to stay, but he didn't believe him enough to tell the truth. So he lied. Unbelief in God, it led to vain thinking. He became futile in his mind, and he sought refuge in lies rather than living by faith in God. Now, we have to be on guard against this kind of unbelief because it renders us spiritually blind, unfeeling, estranged from the life that God's called us to live. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. It says this, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. The reason why Paul gives this exhortation is because it's entirely possible for Christians to live and speak like unbelievers, like people who don't believe God. They don't trust him. We can act that way. The world's filled with people like Esau who are given over and driven by sexual desire, greedily pursuing a sinful pleasures that blind that alienate us from the life of God. And it's not the way that Jesus has called us to live. If we're going to follow Jesus, we should walk in holiness. That's what he's called us to. That's the example that he's given us. So we need to, having been born again, put off the sinful conduct. Like you say, you know what? That shirt, it goes in the bin. It's filthy. It's tattered. I have a new life now. That is gone. And then to be renewed in the spirit of our mind through reading God's word and following examples through faith and then put on the new man, righteousness, holiness. That's marked by those things. Putting away lying, it says, speak truth to your neighbor. Take this small step that when you speak, you speak the truth. With no, no intent to deceive, no half-truths, no deceptions, you, you speak the truth. And you do so because of faith in Jesus. And if you will make this one change in your life, it will dramatically change your whole life when we start telling the truth. We start speaking the truth. Now, I don't say that so we could say, all right, I've ticked that box, and I can look at other people with aloof, judgmental eyes. Unbelief, lying, fleshly lust, they are extremely subtle. We don't see them ourselves, and we need somebody like Abimelech to call us out on it. God does that in his word, and sometimes God will bring conviction through the Holy Spirit to say, you know, this is a lie, and I'm living it. We are to examine ourselves according to the light of God's word. How many times have you asked, 
help to find something that you've lost, like your keys or your sunnies. You've looked, you can't find it, and you're like, could you help me? Where are these? I'm in a hurry. Where? I can't find this tool. I need assistance. Where did you put it? Because I don't know where you put the thing. Now, there's also things that are impossible for us to see ourselves, like when I have an ingrown hair on the back of my head. I'm like, there's something hurting back there. I cannot see it myself. I can't deal with it. Honey, can you look at this, right? A personal example. Now, there's other people, like a doctor, would say, something is wrong with my wrist. I need a scan to look inside because my skin is covering this. I'm having these headaches. I need a scan of my brain to make sure that everything's fine. So we get these scans, right, doctors and, and people we trust to look in, these experts that can give us information about what's going on. Now listen to what David says in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David realizes God sees and knows things that I don't see. I don't know. I have no idea that it's there, but I need. I am willing to ask him. And we're kind of like, this is how we are in our flesh. We'll say, search me when we know we don't have any contraband on us. But if we do have contraband, we don't want to be searched because we know they're going to find something. And so we say, Lord, don't search me. We don't want him to find the thing that we know is there. We know there's something. There's got to be something there because we're not perfect. But we'd rather avoid or ignore the thing that is killing us because we're too ashamed to admit, to humble ourselves, that we've been wrong. We've been lying. I mean, it would be so foolish if you are dying to refuse to go to the specialist because you're afraid they could find and successfully treat the problem, right? That, that's the whole reason why you go, is because you are sick and you are dying, and so you go to have them look and hopefully find something. We want it found if it's in our bodies. We want it found and eradicated. We want it dealt with. But what about our lies or our sin? Are we having the same mentality with that? Where you say, Lord, I want you to find it. Show me where this anxiety is coming from, where these worries and anger is coming from, this temptation to lie that I just fall into so easily. Show me, search me, point it out so I can repent, so I can be done with it because of your power and your strength. Help me, God. Pride, greed, and lust, they want to stay in the dark. They don't want to be found and our flesh loves to coddle them. It's like when you have a growth. Your body is feeding it nutrients and it's growing and growing. It's just feeding it. It's helping it along. But the Lord would have us that exposed so that he, we can confess it. He can deal with it. And Jesus has on Calvary. Genesis 26, verse 11. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. After Isaac's lie came to light, Abimelech charged all the people. He says, do no harm to this man or to his wife. <laughs> he, she is his wife, by the way. 
And he exhibited faith, didn't he, to stay. He had been caught out in a lie. He didn't just turn tail and run to Egypt or go back to Lahai Roy. He stayed. And he sowed. That is a great thing, too, because he put down roots there. He expected to be there when there was a harvest. Why would you sow if you didn't intend to reap? So he sows in the land. It seems like it's something he hadn't done yet. He had been there a long time, but we don't read of him sowing. He had only been sowing lies. Now he begins to sow in faith that he will receive, and God blesses him. God causes him to prosper. A miraculous prosperity of a hundredfold. Can you imagine being wealthy already and then having a hundredfold increase? We'd be happy with like 20%, but this is a hundredfold. For every dollar that Abraham gave him, it's like a hundred. God blessed him. And the men who were saying, hey, who's this lady with you? Oh, she's my sister. I'm wife. She's my wife. Now they're going, look at those crops. Look at the possessions. This guy, and he probably didn't have the best of the land as a sojourner, and yet his land is yielding plentifully, and it's like only God could help him be that prosperous with what he had to work with. I mean, he has everything in God. God provided for all his needs. Isaac was not a perfect man. When his sin is confessed and repented of, God blessed him and caused him to prosper. There is a connection between the two. Proverbs 28, 13, it says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. God blesses those who trust him. He blesses those who obey him, who yield themselves to him. The Lord appeared to Isaac. Jesus Christ has revealed himself to us. He's established a new covenant in his blood. And so for all those who trust in him, the promise of James 1.12 rings true. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Is there anything more prosperous than a life with God now and forever? When God is the giver of life, he's the one who provides for every one of our needs. He knows our needs intimately and he's able to meet them by his grace. So we're blessed with that crown of life, that eternal inheritance that God has prepared for those who love him. And you find more than what money can give you. You find security and rest and comfort, correction, rest, instruction, guidance, everything we need now and forever in Christ. And so every day we have this opportunity if we're gonna be like Esau to just trade away, to exchange our birthright as children of the Most High, for the flesh, for these passing lusts, the things that cannot satisfy or save us, know that God's faithful to keep his covenant. He's faithful to keep his word. He's kept his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and then to us through uh, Jesus Christ. And so let's, let's be ones who feed on God's faithfulness. Let's just turn there, Psalm 34, verse 8 through 10. Really love this passage. We have to brought to a place of submission before the Lord. Psalm 34, 8 through 10. We are exhorted here by David. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. The God who blessed Isaac and made him prosperous, he can transform us by faith in Jesus. We can be chips off the new block, born again, blessed, spiritually transformed. So let's invite God to search our hearts. Say, God, you have a look. You have a look at my heart. You search my anxieties so I can repent of my sin. To put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of our mind, put on the new man that's in righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, how it does search us. It probes us like a sword probes flesh. Lord, it it cuts to the heart. It gets right to the, the heart of the matter and exposes our unbelief so often. Lord, I pray that you would you would open our eyes to see how unbelief shows itself in our lives through lies and that we would, by faith in Jesus, choose to speak the truth, to walk honestly and uprightly before you, not seeking the passing pleasures of sin, but choosing to submit ourselves to you, knowing that it's in you that we have life and that abundantly. We thank you, Lord, for your gentle way in which you rebuke us, how you uh, reveal our need to change and how you're gentle in the way that you bring conviction through your spirit. And then you seek to restore us, Lord, not to just uh, curse us, but to bless us because of your love for us. And we thank you for the blessing that Isaac received when he walked in faith in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just wash away the refuge of lies so that we would look to you and find our rest and comfort and perfect peace in your presence. And thank you for the joy that you give us, Lord, for the the hope that we have that's not just airy-fairy, someday things will be better, but to know you and to walk with you and to have you, to be by your side in your presence is glorious. And Lord, I pray that that we we would... repent of our sin, and we would also enter into the end result of rejoicing and a closer relationship with God because of your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.